Perhaps uh, you are familiar with the story from the Gospel of John. It's found in John chapter 8, and it's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Pretty well-known, beloved story in the New Testament. It's the account of a woman whom we don't know really any details about her life. We don't know anything about uh, what she does. We don't know anything about her husband. We don't know anything about her marriage. We don't know whether she has children. We don't know what her reputation in the community is. We know nothing of her life except one thing, and that is that she is caught in the act of adultery. And some religious leaders, they find out about this. They find out that she uh, is committing adultery, and so they run to the home of her illicit lover, and they break in, and they catch her in the act. They drag her out of the home, and they parade her through the streets, and they mock her, they shame her, they belittle her, they embarrass her, and then they bring her in front of Jesus. And the religious leaders say, well, Jesus, the, the law of Moses says that we should stone this woman. Uh, what do you think, Jesus? And the, the thing is, they're not wrong. Uh, the law of Moses does say that she should be punished. And according to the laws of the Old Testament, she was deserving of death under their legal system. She knows this. They know this. Jesus knows this. And she's extremely afraid in this moment. She's thinking, uh, one, she's ashamed She's been caught. She's been exposed. She is afraid for her life. And in this moment, Jesus, rich in mercy, turns to the religious leaders and he says, well, if any of you are without sin, you're free to take the first shot. And it says they looked around and they dropped their stones and they walked away. And Jesus approaches this woman. He looks her in the eyes and he says, do these guys condemn you? And she says, no, Lord. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And so in this one moment, this very lowest moment of her life, she is um, feeling shame. She's feeling guilt. She uh, has dishonored her family. Uh, she has been paraded around the community. She is embarrassed. She's afraid. And in one moment, Jesus disarms her enemies, he rescues her from death, he forgives her sin, he extends kindness and compassion to her, and he invites her into a new life that honors God. Go and sin no more, he says to her. And this is one of the most beloved stories in all of the scriptures. But we know, what, it, this, this little tiny story is so beloved, but the truth is we don't know anything about what happens after this in her life. We don't have any more details about her life after this. And we assume, we assume that she probably lived a life of faithfulness after this, that she went and, 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 and lived a life of obedience and joy. But the truth is, we simply don't know. And so um, we assume these things, but we don't know. And so we can even pretend for a moment, imagine for a moment, make a, a hypothetical for a moment that maybe what if she walked away what if the end of this story was she walked away, went back to her lover, continued on with her adulterous affair, and never had any life transformation? That would be the ultimate tragedy of that story, wouldn't it? Now, we don't know that's true. I don't think that's true. But that would be an incredible tragedy, wouldn't it? 
How could you have an experience like that with Jesus where he silences your accusers, delivers you from death, and sets you free to a new life, and then you turn around and walk away unchanged and no desire to live the life that he called you to? That would be a tragedy, and it would be absurd. And we're studying right now the, the letter of 1 John, and John, the author of this letter, he says, he said, I'm not convinced that could happen. <laughs> he said, I'm not convinced you could have a true experience with Jesus and walk away unchanged. He says, the clearest evidence that you have had a true encounter with the living Christ is that you will live a life of seeking to obey his commands and pleasing him. John says, you cannot walk away from a true experience with Jesus like this woman had, shrug your shoulders and say, that was great. And now I'm going to go back to the way I was living. John says the clearest evidence of a, an encounter with Jesus in your life is that you're, you have a desire to obey him. This is what he says. We're in 1 John chapter 2, and then we're going to do some uh, verses in 1 John chapter 3 today. But look at what he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. He says to us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident we are the children of God. And who are the children? By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so what John says right here is he says, if you really know Jesus, your life will show it. If you really know Jesus, you will obey him. And notice, there's a distinction that needs to be made. John does not say, if you obey the commands of Jesus, he will save you from death, forgive you of sins, and give you a new life. John says, if you know that you've been saved from death, forgiven from sin, and given a new life, you will want to obey the commands of Jesus. When I was in college, I remember I had a friend who, um, he knew that I was a Christian, he knew I was pretty uh, serious about my faith, and he was, asking, he, he was asking questions about it. And we had a conversation about what I believed, and um, I explained to him what I believe, and I, I shared with him John 3.16, as ever God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And he said, oh, so it's about forgiveness of sins. I said, yes. And he said, well, what about all the rules in the Bible? He said, what, what about those? He said, if you don't follow them, does God get mad at you all over again? And and you have to go through it all again? I said, no. I said, he forgives, and he forgives, and he forgives, and he forgives. His grace is endless. And he said, I'm not sure I understand. He said, what is the point of the commands 
if that's not what it's all about. And he said, what's the point of the commands if you're saved by grace, essentially? And what's the point of the commands if he just keeps on forgiving anyway? He said, can you just do whatever you want and still be forgiven and still have a place in heaven? I said, well, in theory, yes. <laughs> I said, but I don't think you fully understand yet. I don't think you fully understand what I'm saying. That if you've experienced the forgiveness of Jesus, you won't desire those things anymore. And John, the author of 1 John, agrees. And that's what he says here in this letter. But the question still remains. If we're saved by grace, not by our rule following, what in the world are the rules for? Why are there all these rules and commands in the Bible if we're not saved by commands and saved by our obedience and saved by rules, rule following, what are all these commands for? What is obedience to Jesus for? Why do we obey? Is it to keep God happy with us? Is it to get things from God that we want? Or is obedience for something greater? I believe it's for something greater. And so I'm going to share with you five things, five uh, things that, uh, why, uh, five reasons why we obey Jesus, why we obey the commands of God. The first is this, obedience is the evidence of our faith. In our passage, John says in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, no one who's born of God makes a practice of sinning. He says, no one who's born of God makes a practice of it. John says, if you've truly been born of God, there's no way, there's no way you could be apathetic to your sin. There's no way that you can make a practice of disobeying Jesus and be comfortable with it. Uh, and this isn't an isolated statement by John either in this passage. John says this over and over again. He said it all throughout this letter. First John uh, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, If we say we have fellowship with Jesus while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And it's not just John saying this. Jesus said it as well. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not you might, not I suggest. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Jesus' brother James says in James chapter 2, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. He said, I will show you my faith. I will show you the evidence of my faith by what I do, by my works. He said, it's not about belief only. He said, you may believe that God is one. Great, you do well. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. It's not about what you say you believe that is evidence of what you believe. It's what you do that is evidence of what you believe. How you live gives evidence to what you say you believe. If you want to know you're a Christian, look at your life. Not are you perfect, but do you have a desire to obey Jesus? There is an old question that many people will say. They say, you know, it's, uh, pre preachers will ask this question. They'll say, if you were accused of being a Christian and you were brought into a court of law, what are the evidences that would convict you of being a Christian, you know? You, it's good. you know, you can say you believe anything, but what's the evidence of your belief? You can say that Jesus is Lord, but what in your life indicates that you truly believe that Jesus is Lord? Uh, many of you know that I uh, coach a, a youth track team, and so it's kind of fun. It's total madness out at Fort Hamilton track on Wednesday nights. It's amazing. 
Um, but I have uh, one athlete. I'm going to call him Charlie. We'll give him a, a name, okay? Not his real name, but we're going to call him Charlie. And he comes to practice every week. Week. He's always enthusiastic. Coach Will, Coach Will, Coach Will, Coach Will, Coach Will. Jumping around, doing backflips, spinning, you know, all that. He's just super energetic. And um, he kind of has a hard time listening. He has a hard time following instructions sometimes. He has a hard time trusting me. And uh, what, one of the things we do in our youth track league is every few weeks we'll do a 400-meter dash, a 400-meter race, and we'll time them, and we'll see how they're getting better over the time. And, this, and Charlie, uh, he's, he just wants to win that thing so bad, and I don't think he had ever won it before, and he just wanted to win it so bad. And finally, one week, a couple weeks ago, we're doing the 400-meter race, and we take off, and he just wants to win. He takes off, and all the big kids just shoot out. You know, and for, keep in mind, for an eight, nine-year-old, 400 meters, that's one lap around the track. That's a long way uh, for those, for little legs, you know. And the big kids take off, and they just get a huge lead on him. And I say, hey, Charlie, stay with me. I said, stay with me. If you want, I know you want to win this. If you want to win this thing, stay with me. I'll tell you when to go. And so we're running, and we get about halfway through, and he says, Coach Will, can I go? I said, not yet, Charlie. And he says, uh, he says but look, they're so far ahead. He said, I want to win. I said, trust me, Charlie, trust me. And we waited a little bit longer. And finally, once I saw those big kids that went out so fast and they were running, you know, once I saw them faltering, I said, Charlie, go. And he took off and he dusted them in the final 100 meters. And he was so happy as he was, you know, holding up his hands as he crossed the finish line. And it was such a cool story. Um, a, a, such a cool moment in his life and in our relationship because his tr- it finally indicated. Every week he calls me, Coach Will, Coach Will, Coach Will, Coach Will, but he never lets me coach him, you know? I'm like, don't go out too fast. Don't go out too fast. But finally this week he listened to me. And you can say Coach Will, Coach Will, Coach Will all you want, but it's when you trust your coach that it really is evidence that you really believe in, that you really trust them. There's a difference between calling someone your coach and doing what your coach says, right? And the same with our discipleship to Jesus. Uh, there are so many times in our lives where Jesus says, do this. And we're doing it, and we look ahead, and it looks like everybody else is sprinting off in front of us. And it feels like the race is slipping away. And it feels like by doing what Jesus is telling us to do, it feels like we're missing out, and we're losing out, and we're putting ourselves at a disadvantage. But if we trust that Jesus is Lord, not just say that Jesus is Lord, but we trust that Jesus is Lord, we trust that his commands are what will lead us into the fullness of life and will give us the victory that he has for us. See, a life that obeys the commands of Jesus is evidence of a life changed by Jesus and evidence of a life that trusts Jesus. The second thing I want you to see is that obedience leads to a greater knowledge of God. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we obey his commandments. Whoever says, I know Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John says here, that the way that we come to know that we know Jesus is through obedience to him. See, obedience, as we just said, is an evidence of our faith, 
but it's also a means of cultivating faith. The commands of Jesus are not simply, by following them, we don't, we don't just simply evidence that we know that we trust him, but when we obey the commands of Jesus, there's something about the obedience and the commands themselves because Jesus is good and he commands these things because he's good and they're, they're bringing us into greater life that by obedience to the commands, we come to know God's character even more. You know, it's, Jesus told Peter and his disciples, he didn't say, uh, listen to my teaching. He didn't say, believe what I say. He said, follow me. Walk behind me, do what I do, and I will make you my disciples. If you want to know me, you must follow me, is what he told Peter. And it's through doing what Jesus did and obeying his commands that Peter and the disciples learned the character of Jesus. And, you know, sometimes God will call you to something or the scriptures will command something of you and you simply don't want to do it, you know? <laughs> You're like, I just don't want to do this. Um, but I'm telling you that the scriptures attest to the fact that when you obey the commands of Jesus, you learn, you come to a greater knowledge of God. And there's one, at least one experience in my life where I've, I've felt this in the most, uh, the mo just most acute, most in intense way. Um, you guys know that our oldest son uh, was adopted. And I don't know if I've ever told the story of how we chose to do that, but my wife and I, when we were in grad school, we were so broke, so poor, um, but we were living off of, we both had jobs, we were living off of one income, and we were saving the other income, because we were, we were going to buy a house with that money. And uh, we, were, um, we were at church one night, and I'm telling you, the songs weren't about this, the sermon wasn't about this, but as I was sitting there in the service that day, I just kind of recalled to my mind that verse in the book of James that says, true religion at its core um, is one that is unstained by, is a life that is unstained by the world and cares for orphans and widows. And I, I, I'm thinking of this verse and there's something in my spirit, in my heart, in my soul, whatever, that just says, I feel like God might be calling us to adopt a child. And I was like real nervous about that. I didn't know what to do with that. We got in the car. My wife and I were supposed to go meet some friends at a restaurant between church, uh, between church and the, the restaurant we're driving. And I just said, I said, Rebecca, you're not going to believe what I just felt. I said, I felt like God was speaking to me and telling us that we ought to adopt a child. And she goes, you're not going to believe this. I felt the same thing. And so we said, uh, okay, <laughs> so we're on the, in the distance from the church parking lot to Chick-fil-A, um, we said, uh, we're going to do this. We don't know how, but we're going to do this. And what that meant for us as a newlywed couple in school with two like minimum wage jobs is we said, we, you know what, we've been living on one income for the last year and we've saved this thing for our down payment for our house. We're going to use that to adopt a child. And that's not like a fun thing to hear, you know what I mean? Like you're like, that's, that's a lot of money for us. But, but we, we went forward with that. And through that experience, we learned more about, through the earthly adoption of a child, we learned more about the adoption of God of his children than we ever could have from a sermon or a song or a book study or whatever. 
You see, it, we, there are things about God's character that we never could have learned had we not been obedient to that call. You see, God uses obedience to His commands to give us greater knowledge of who He is. A while back, I was meeting with one of our deacons here in our church, and we were talking about church finances. That's what deacons do here, uh, among many other things. And we were considering the fact that in our church, um, as generous as our church is, not everyone in our congregation um, financially supports the ministry of our church. And I'm not saying this to shame anyone. This isn't the point of the sermon. I'm teaching a, a more valuable lesson. But as we were talking about this, that there are people in our congregation that, that, um, that don't contribute, um, this deacon, uh, their voice began to quiver a little bit. And um, I'm, I think I may have saw tears well up in eyes. And this deacon said, I can't believe that. He said, uh, they said, because it's through generosity and sacrifice that I've seen God's faithfulness in my life. And this deacon said, it's so sad that some people haven't experienced that. And this deacon was saying that generosity was not something that they did simply because the Bible commanded it. But this deacon said that it's through generosity that I've learned about the faithfulness of God. You see, when we obey God, we often think we're losing something. But what we're gaining is greater knowledge and greater relationship with Him. The third thing I want you to see is that obedience forms us into the image of Jesus. Not only does obedience help us to know the character of Jesus, but it actually makes us more like him. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John makes this distinction. He says, our decisions to obey or not to obey the commands of Jesus, um, they're not neutral. Like those aren't minor choices that we make. Every decision we make not to obey Jesus and not to be formed into the image of Jesus is a decision to be formed by something else. And I want, it's so important that you recognize that we live in contested space. This world that we live in is not neutral. Every decision we make is a decision to be formed into the image of Jesus or into the image of the world or into the image of Satan. Every purchasing decision we make, every relationship decision we make, everything we do Everything we say, everything we watch, everything we download, everything we stream is, is a decision that forms us one way or another into something. And it will form you either more into the image of Jesus or more into the image of the world. And the fact of the matter is, is that the world has a vision for your life. This city has a vision for your life. John Tyson, a peer of mine here in New York City, is a pastor in Midtown. He says, the world wants you, has a vision for your life. The world wants you to be greedy, unrestrained, and anxious and consumeristic, addicted to the dopamine rewards that come through trivial pursuits. Ouch. <laughs> he says, Satan also has a vision for your life. 
The enemy wants you to be a selfish person fixated on entitlement, victimhood, selfishness, selfishness, success, sex, pleasure, and power. He says, but Jesus has a greater vision for your life. He wants you to be godly, passionate, healthy, kind, generous, peaceful, self-controlled. He wants you to be the type of person that not only lives at peace within your own soul, but is a blessing to the world around you and brings peace to the people you come in contact with. And you go, that's what I want. I, the vision that Jesus has for my life, that's what I want for my life. How does Jesus do it? Does he sprinkle Jesus dust on you and say, all right, now you're self-controlled? No. He forms us into his image through his commands. What are the rules for? The rules are to show us how to become like Jesus. God forms us into the image of Jesus through his commands. This is why David says, I delight in the law of the Lord. You're like, who delights in rules? David did because he knew that by, by the commands of God, it would, would make him into a man who was good and kind. John Tyson continues, he says, the one consuming goal of your life ought to be a desire to be formed into the image of Jesus. This means that you must choose to love what he loves and hate what he hates and feel what he feels and see how he sees and want what he wants and respond how he responded and become like him. The fourth thing I want you to see well, the third thing was obedience forms us into the image of Jesus, but I also want you to see fourthly that obedience prepares us for God's blessings. I remember when I was a high school student, big test would come up. I would stay up all night watching Sports Center, playing video games, whatever, you know. Didn't study for the test, and I would, sh- I'd, I, without fail, Spanish test being passed around. I don't know, you know, uh, I, I know no Spanish. No Espanol, you know? And I got the test coming up, and I'm going, God, help me ace this test. Like, what a dumb prayer to pray. You know, what a, how naive was I to think that God was going to bless my laziness and unpreparedness, you know, and turn it into an A. That's not how that works. But many of us do this with our lives, don't we? We pray, God, bless me. But we aren't putting ourselves in a position to receive his blessings. God bless my finances. Well, how can I bless you if you're not obeying the simplest commands I've given you regarding your finances? God bless my relationship or my relationships when you're not obeying the simplest commands that God gives regarding relationships. You see, it's obedience to the commands of Jesus that actually puts us in a position to experience the blessing and the faithfulness of God. I think of the Apostle Peter. You know, he was a fisherman by trade. That means he was good at it. That's how he earned his living. And there's this account, there's actually a few of them, where Jesus, or Peter, is out fishing on, in, a, in a boat. And, I mean, he's a, he's a trained fisherman by trade, and he's out one night, and he's fishing, throwing the net over on the boat, nothing, not catching anything, not catching any fish. Finally, a stranger on the shore says, Cast your net to the other side of the boat. And Peter's going, I've been doing this a long time. And if I'm not catching fish here, 30 inches over here 
on the other side of the boat is not going to make a difference. But Peter, in faith, goes, all right, cast the net to the other side of the boat, and the boat just about capsizes because there's fish all in it. You see, if Peter, in that moment, had said, I don't understand fully this command. This doesn't make sense. Why would you tell me to cast this on the other side of the boat? I don't want to cast. I know better than you. You're just a stranger on the shore. Who are you to tell me how to do my job? Who are you to tell me how to live my life? I'm fishing on this side of the boat. I know what I'm doing. But Peter instead listened to the voice on the shore, put his net on the other side of the boat, and there was blessing in that net. And listen, you may not understand God's commands about forgiveness. You may not understand God's commands about authority. You may not understand God's commands about money or sexuality or turning the other cheek. Those commands may even seem foolish to you. And you may think you know better. But the invitation of Jesus is to cast your net to the other side of the boat and watch and see how he blesses that. And I think you'll find that blessing always follows obedience. Number five, obedience is the way we are salt and light to the world. Obeying the way of Jesus is the way in which we are salt and light to the world. One of the things that is so beautiful to me as I read the Gospels is that the worst sinners are drawn to Jesus. Like they stumble over themselves to get into the presence of Jesus. They can't get enough of him. And it confuses and it frustrates me sometimes when I look at Christianity today, when I look at my own life today. And very often it feels like the very people that were drawn to Jesus aren't drawn to us. And you're like, why? Like, why is that? Why do Christians so often struggle to attract the people that Jesus attracted? And I may be wrong, and there are probably many, many other reasons, but I think there are two errors that we often make in, within the world of Christianity that we think is being faithful to the way of Jesus, but actually repels people from Jesus. And it's two different groups of people, but the results are exactly the same. The first group of people are those who want to spend their time mocking and accusing the world of being godless rebels, you know? They want to talk about how bad the world out there is and how terrible you all are and you guys should, you know, uh, uh, pull your pants up and you should, you know, stop listening to the devil music and you should, you know, it's like all about everybody out there and what they're doing wrong and if they would just shape up, they would be all right. And this group loves to use the rules and the commands of God to shout at people who aren't even believers. And they, the commands of God become a weapon to bludgeon people not to invite them into a new way of life. There's another group of people that they just want to win the world over to Jesus by downplaying the commands of Jesus. We call this being relevant. I just want to be relevant to the world. And what this often means is we're trying to be cool. And we're trying to make everyone think, we're like you. It's cool. You know? You can still be you and still be one of us. It's cool. And so you see Christians who will brag and boast about not being like those other Christians. I'm not like that. I'm cool. I'm just like you. Oh, the, the Baptists. Ugh. I'm one, of the, I'm one of the cool ones. Like, I cuss a little. It's all right, you know? I'm cool. I'm just like you. And what happens is we minimize and sometimes even ignore 
the way of Jesus. And the result of both of these approaches are exactly the same. People aren't impressed. For the first group, you can tell people how wrong they're living all you want. But Jesus attracted people not by telling them how bad they were. He attracted people by showing them how good he was. And the most Christ-like approach is not for you to scream at people about how wrong they're living, but is to show them a more compelling and more beautiful way. And it's to live a life obedient to Jesus. And for the second group, you've got people who want to conform Jesus into the image of the world so that he will look progressive and cool. But in the end, you're not changing the people of the world, you're changing Christianity. It's like if you ever watched that show, King of the Hill, he said, when he's making fun of Christian rock bands, he's like, you're not making Christianity cooler, you're making rock and roll worse. And sometimes we need to hear, we're not making Jesus cooler by, being, by thinking, we're, by downplaying the commands of Jesus. We're changing Christianity altogether. Brennan Manning says the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. What people need is to see Jesus lived in front of them by people who have been changed by Jesus and are obedient to his commands. And I'm convinced that it's actually when we look a little bit weird to the world that we'll be the most compelling. Madeline LaEngle says, we draw people to Christ by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Finally, Jesus has, or John has this line in verse 5. He says, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And he says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. What John says here, he says, he appeared to take away sins. Jesus has taken away your sins. He has given you new life. And the most obvious response to such a thing, to such a salvation, the most logical response is for you to have a life that is lived in obedience to Him. We began this, our time together this afternoon with the story of the woman caught in adultery. And just think about what happened in that story. Jesus stood before her accusers. He disarmed them and he silenced them, and he pushed them away. The scriptures tell us that he's done the same for us. Who are our accusers? Who are our enemies? Who are the ones that threaten us and, 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 and mock us? He has silenced those things. Sin, shame, guilt, Satan, and death itself. They have no power over you. They have dropped their stones in the presence of Jesus. Jesus rescued this woman from death. They were going to stone her. And according to the law, she was guilty. They were ready to kill her, but Jesus stepped in front of her, intervened, and took her place. We deserve the judgment of God. According to the law, we are guilty. But Jesus, in his 
mercy and grace has intervened and he died our death on the cross and he calls us now into his resurrection life. And Jesus then, he set this woman free and he called her to a greater life. He said, go and sin no more. And he's done the same for us. The scriptures say that the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We have been born again, the scriptures say. And just as it would have been a tragedy if this woman had walked away unchanged from that experience, it would be just as much of a tragedy for you to hear the message of the gospel of Jesus that he has loved you and died in your place and to walk away unchanged. The greatest tragedy that could happen this afternoon is for this group of people to walk out these doors with no desire to obey Jesus. There's no reason, you've heard. And to walk out this door and to go, eh, would be the greatest tragedy that could be. I think of the old hymn by Isaac Watts. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's why we obey. Let me pray for us, church. Father, we thank you for your commands. God, we thank you that you have saved us, that you have um, given us a new life. But God, we also thank you that you have given us commandments and you have shown us a way to live that leads us into the experience of the abundant life. And so God, I pray that we would walk on the narrow path that leads to life, that we would experience more of you and that through our obedience, we would uh, give evidence to our faith. And through our obedience, God, that we would learn more of who you are. And through our obedience, you would form us more into the image of your son. And through our obedience, God, that you would bless us, that we would position ourselves to receive the blessings that you have for us. And God, I pray that through our obedience, God, that we would show this city what you are like and that you would honor that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you got-